We are in a, a Christmas series. We're calling it uh, the, the Beauty of Christmas. And what we're doing each week is we're coming and we're just looking at different parts of the Christmas story. Kind of like when you hold up a diamond and you turn it in the light and the light comes in and refracts off of it so that you see its beauty and it glimmers forth. And so what we're doing is just holding up the Christmas story. So that God, so that the glory of God would shine into this story and that we would see the beauty and the glory of our God and what he has done for us in his son, Jesus Christ. And so uh, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. Uh, We're going to be reading verses 18 through 25. Here at Timberline, uh, we stand when we read God's word. We do this uh, as a reminder to ourselves that this word comes to us uh, from God as a gift. It is inspired by his spirit for the purpose of teaching, for correcting, for training us in righteousness. And so here we go, chapter 1, verse 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her, and her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let me pray. Father, we we come to you now. And Lord, we thank you for this story. Lord, the story of your son coming into this world as a baby for a mission. And the mission is to save us from our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that as we look at this text today, we would see how powerful this birth story is. What it means that Jesus came. Why he was born of a virgin. And God, the truth and the comfort that that provides for us. And the encouragement it gives us to go and share the truths of this gospel. So, Lord, strengthen us in our faith this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, now, if you were here with us last week, we looked at the plan, um, the plan of Christmas. And we were in the first part of Matthew chapter 1, and we read the genealogy of Jesus. And what we saw as we went through all of those names is that Jesus is the long-awaited anointed one. He is the one who has come to fulfill the promises of God. And we see Just as Matthew 1 begins, that says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus comes as the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's the one who has come to fulfill all the promises that God has made in the Old Testament. So the genealogy shows us Jesus has the right 
credentials to be the anointed one. But there's a big, glaring question, and we totally avoided it last week. But we're going to look at it this week. When we come to the end of the genealogy, we're faced with a question. The question is, is how did Jesus have or receive the right credentials in order to be the anointed one? How, how was he the son of David, the son of Abraham? This is, uh, this is the question that our text today, verses 18 to 25, this is what it answers. And so first I want to show why we know that the text is making us ask this question. Uh, one thing we do here is, is we do what we call expositional preaching, where we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. Now at this moment, we're not going through books of the Bible. We're looking at different parts of the Christmas story. But we're still trying to go verse by verse, and we're trying to understand the context. If we miss the context of anything in God's Word, we can make it say whatever it is that we want. And so one of the things that, that my goal is every week or, or anyone else who comes up here is that as we preach God's word, we want you to see where these truths come from. Why do we say the things that we're doing? Why do we say what we say? We're not just making it up, but we want you then, when you're back at home or when you're talking with someone else, to be able to see these truths and also communicate it to others. So, how is it that we know the text is asking this question? Well, if we go back to Matthew 1, and let's just say verse 2. Beginning in verse 2, all the way to verse 16, the word Father occurs 39 times. For example, if you look at verse 2, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Do you get the point? Father, 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 father. Even when we come across the women who are mentioned, like Tamar and Ruth, the man is still listed as the one who is the father of the child because we trace genealogies through the man. But when we come to verses 15 and 16, we see something different. And so we'll just start in verse 15. It says, And Elihud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Do you see something missing? When we come to Joseph, he's not called the father of Jesus. Nowhere will you see that in Matthew's account. Joseph is the only one listed of all these men, 39 times called father, Joseph is not called father. Why? It brings that question to us. It kind of stands out when we get to it. And so Matthew wants us to see that, jo that Joseph and Jesus have a unique, a unique relationship. And so that's where we'll kind of dig into our, our part of the text, starting in verse 18. In verse 18, we see that um, Joseph and Mary are betrothed to one another. Now, a betrothal is a formal and public commitment to be married. It lasts for one year, and during that time, the woman would remain with her parents. Now, it's during this betrothal process that it's become apparent that Mary is pregnant. But notice, twice, once in verse 18, once in verse 25, we're told that Joseph and Mary have not had any sexual relations to this point. So, Matthew is being crystal clear, Jesus is, or Joseph is not the biological father. He's letting it be known. Something else has happened happened here so this has 
the appearance of scandal, the appearance of sin, the appearance of immorality all over this story. Now, according to custom, Mary could be taken out and stoned. At best, she will have the baby and live unmarried for the rest of her life. But what we see here is that, that Joseph, very justly and, and mercifully, rather than make this thing public, he plans to divorce her quietly. We see that in verse 19. So that, that's what he's planning on doing. And then comes verse 20, and an angel comes to Joseph, and he tells him that the baby within Mary is not because of any immorality, but actually God has placed it there. The Holy Spirit has come upon her and placed life within her womb. And we'll come back to that. But notice at the moment, how does the angel refer to Joseph? Look at that in verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David. So if he's a son of David, then he's also a son of Abraham. So we see that Joseph has the right credentials but he is not the biological father of Jesus. So how does Jesus obtain these credentials? So verse 21, the angel tells Joseph that he is to name the baby Jesus. Now this is, this is very important. If Joseph is going to name the baby, what does that mean he has done? It means he's married Mary. And he's adopted Jesus so that he would become the legal father and thus jesus then would have the credentials son of david son of abraham and we see then in verse 25 joseph has changed his mind he marries mary adopts her son calls him jesus and so now jesus is able to come as this anointed one so in joseph what we see joseph in the appearance of sin is revealed as this just and merciful father and so i just want us to kind of keep this part what we've just heard and we're just going to kind of put a pin in it and we're going to come back to it later but it's important for us to see how did jesus have these credentials that joseph in the appearance of sin is revealed as a just and merciful father who adopts him into his family thus jesus has the credentials son of david son of abraham but now we come to a second question. And the second question is, why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin, though? Like, why did it have to be in a special, this special way? So I first want to give you just a wrong answer, because I, I think it's good to give wrong answers. Um, and I'm betting that there's some of you, I'm betting there's many of you who have heard this, and I'm betting there's some of you who believe this right now, and I am one who did believe it, because I was taught it, and, you know, you just, you just, Take what you're taught sometimes, and we don't question it, which is not good, which is why, again, we always want to show why we come to the things that we say. So here's the wrong answer. And Chris, I bet you know this. You probably come up here and just give it. But Jesus was born of a virgin because sin is only passed through the man. Who's heard that one? Sure, more hands. Come on, you guys are shy. Uh, so the, the idea is that only men pass on. We have the hidden sin gene. And so then it's only because of men that the sin is passed through. And so because Mary uh, uh, did not have sexual relations with the man, therefore Joseph, or therefore Jesus, um, is able to be sinless. Um, that's completely false. 
completely false. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. I remember when uh, I was preaching a Christmas series, I think I was a youth pastor, uh, 15 years ago or so, and I was looking for that text. And I looked, and I looked, and it's not there. You cannot find it. There's nothing that even implies that. What do we see in Scripture? Because man has sinned, men and women, we all now have a sinful nature. Women don't need men to be sinful. Men don't need women to be sinful. We're just inherently sinful now because that is what it is to be born in this world. The only person who has ever been righteous without sin is Jesus Christ. Uh, So that's the, the wrong answer. And so don't believe that. And sorry if that's now popped your bubble and you're not able to move past that today. Uh... But what's the right answer? Well, we, we could simply say, well, Jesus was born of a virgin to fulfill Scripture. We see that clearly in verse 22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken to the prophet. So we could just say it was to fulfill Scripture, and that is a really good answer. But it might not be descriptive enough for us. Maybe a better way to look at that is not only to see that Jesus fulfilled Scripture, but why did Jesus come to fulfill this scripture? What does it mean that Jesus has fulfilled it? And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the historical background of this prophecy to understand what does it mean that Jesus now comes as the ultimate fulfillment of this virgin birth prophecy. So uh, I encourage you, read all of Isaiah 7 later. That's where this prophecy comes from. I'm going to kind of summarize it here in this time. But in Isaiah 7, we see that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, that they're making war on Ahaz, the king of Judah. Now, just to back up a little bit, uh, if you remember Saul, David, and Solomon, they were all kings of one nation called Israel. Israel was one kingdom at that moment. But Solomon had a son named Rehoboam. Rehoboam was a foolish king that did not listen to his advisors. And because of him, the nation was split into two kingdoms. There's a northern kingdom now called Israel. And there's a southern kingdom, which is made up of two of the tribes called Judah. Okay, so, so we have Israel, the ten kingdoms up here, with Syria teaming up against Judah now down here. And their plan is to make Judah a vassal a vassal kingdom, meaning under their rule and under their reign. And Ahaz and all of Judah, we're told, are shaking with fear like trees do in the wind. But God says to Isaiah, I want you to go to King Ahaz, and I want you to give him a message. And the message is, these two kings will not come to destroy you. In fact, I will destroy them. So he's promising this protection. He's promising you do not need to fear. And then God, uh, to give Ahaz further confidence in his promise, he says, ask me whatever sign you want. You ask a sign, and I will give it to you so you know I am with you, and I will protect you from these kingdoms. But this is what Ahaz says in verse 12. I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, at first glance, we might say, wow, that's a pretty pious answer. I mean, here's a guy, he's basically saying, God, your word is good enough. 
I do not need to question it. I do not need you to give some type of test. You have said it, and therefore I believe it. Um, and if that's all that we had about King Ahaz, we might actually believe that. Uh, but because of what we have in the rest of the account of Isaiah and 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles that tell us more of the story, we know that is not what Ahaz is saying at all. You see, Ahaz has his own plans, and God does not fit in those plans. And so this is what we read in 2 Kings. So in 2 Kings 16, we also have an account of Ahaz that tells us about this part of his life. And so in verses 7 through 9, this is Ahaz's plan. So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pilizar, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and rescue me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who are attacking me. Ahaz also took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent a present to the king of Assyria. And the king of Assyria listened to him. The king of Assyria marched up against Damascus and took it, carrying its people captive to Ker, and he killed Rezin. And actually, he also destroys the northern kingdom. This is in 722 B.C. He destroys the northern kingdom, and Israel then is taken captive uh, and dispersed at that moment. And we don't have any more information at the moment, or no more really occurs about them in the Old Testament uh, because they've been defeated now by Assyria. But notice how Ahaz refers to the king of Assyria and his place and position to him. He says, I am your servant and your son. Now, as God's people, Israel, who are they to be the servant of and the son of? Throughout the Old Testament, God says, Israel, you are my son, and you are to be my servants. And he promises protection and his blessing on them. So now, the very identity that God's people are to have with God Ahaz is now rebelling and fully rejecting God and saying, I will now become loyal to you, king of Assyria. He is fully turning his back on God. He desires in no way to please him. And then notice what he does with God's possessions. Just to make sure that we're not misinterpreting this, he now takes all the holy possessions within the temple that belong to God, and what does he do with them? He gives them to the king of Assyria. He buys a pagan king and all of his pagan gods with their power to come rescue them rather than trust in the God who said, I will give you a sign that you will know for sure these two kingdoms will not destroy you. And so Ahaz takes these things. He trusts in his power and his resources, and his wisdom, and to some degree, his plan works. Actually, what we see is Israel comes, he destroys uh, Syria, and they destroy Israel, the northern kingdom. Problem appears to be solved at the moment, and we'll, we'll come back to that. But, but I want us to notice, as we come back to Isaiah, despite Ahaz's unbelief and his rebellion, what does God do? In his grace and in his mercy, God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Now, I just want you to think, what does that communicate about our God? This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we come, who, despite our rebellion, he says, I'm going to send forth my, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. I'm going to continue to give grace. Now, 
I want us to make sure we rightly understand what it means that God gave this sign. So I want to uh, give a little bit more background on who Ahaz is. So in 2 Chronicles 26, the Kings and Chronicles, there are two books that basically describe the life of the kings um, of Israel, northern and southern kingdom, until they're both defeated and taken by Babylon and Israel. And so in in 2 Kings 16, we're told about King Ahaz, but then in 2 Chronicles 26, there's a lot of overlap, but we're also given a little bit of, uh, of different information in each one. In 2 Chronicles 26, we read that King Ahaz is one of the most wicked kings that, that Judah has ever had. He practiced child sacrifices. He placed altars all throughout Jerusalem and all in the high places. He led all of God's people into worshiping false gods. In fact, he was so wicked that he was not buried where all the other kings are buried, but he was buried in a separate location because he was not to be given the honor that the other kings had. And so this is the king, and remember, the king, and the, the king always leads and represents the people. So if the king is wicked, what does that tell us about the people? They're wicked because the king leads and guides the people. This is why we always say we need a greater king. And Jesus comes as our perfect king, righteous to lead us in righteousness. But here, we have Ahaz, this wicked king. He's led God's people into wickedness. So we must realize that when we read about Ahaz rebelling against Judah, it's not like Judah's going, we actually would really rather worship God and follow him. They're all rebelling against God. All of Judah is rejecting God, rejecting his grace, rejecting his mercy. So when God is persistent in giving this sign of grace and mercy, let us not think that it is because of the value or the worth or the righteousness of Ahaz or of Judah. No, rather than showing our worth, the sign goes back to show the extravagance of God's mercy and his grace. It highlights his character more than anything about us. So when we look at this sign in Isaiah 7:14, we read, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now in Isaiah 8, we see that Isaiah actually takes, um, takes a wife, a virgin. He has a child with her. And this child is the, uh, is the sign that God's people will be saved from their present enemies. One thing that's important to understand, when we're in the Old Testament, there's often promises and prophecies that are made. Oftentimes, there's an immediate fulfillment of them. There might even be several fulfillments of them. But what we see is that these promises always lead to a greater climactic fulfillment, which is what we'll do is when we come to Jesus. He comes as the ultimate fulfillment of this promise because see when we read that a virgin shall give birth it doesn't necessarily um, mean that she must remain a virgin all throughout her life or all throughout the pregnancy so what isaiah did with the wife that he took she was a virgin had a child with her that fulfills the prophecy but then what we see when we come to jesus it fulfills it in even a greater ultimate way and we'll come back to that in a moment but what we see is that the child then is not only the proof that god will save his people but is also the evidence that god is with his people that's what the name emmanuel means god with us so god is promising protection and how is he going to protect them 
because he's with them. He's reminding them, you're never alone. So what we see is that our God is merciful to save his people, but if they reject him, they will still have to deal with him. Assyria did defeat, um, Assyria did defeat uh, Syria and Israel as Ahaz had hoped. But, but one thing we know about sin is that it will always take us further than we thought and cost us more than we ever imagined. Just think that through. It will always take you further and it will always cost you more. This is what we read. So if we go back to Isaiah, so in Isaiah chapter 7, we see that Isaiah's, um, that King Ahaz is rejecting God. Now in chapter 8, we see what happens. Verse 8, verses 6 through 8. Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia, therefore behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. So what's incredible here is that God actually uses Assyria. Ahaz thinks he's rebelling against God, but God actually uses Assyria as the means to overcome these two other nations. But then we see Assyria turns on Judah and almost completely wipes them out. That's what it means when it compares Assyria to a river overflowing her banks, drowning all of Judah except for going up to the very neck. Only the head remains. There's only a small remnant that will remain. Assyria will wipe out most of Judah. And then we have the words at the very end of verse 8, O Emmanuel. Now think about that. Ahaz has rejected God. God gives grace anyway, saves him. Ahaz thinks he can continue to ignore God. And so then this means in which Ahaz trusted it now turns on him. And then we're left with this word Emmanuel. See, the word Emmanuel is not just a name of a child. It's a declaration to this world that God is here. So now that we've looked at the historical context of the prophecy, we're now going to move now and we're saying, okay, so how is it that Jesus ultimately fulfills it? Or to go back to our other question, why did Jesus need to be born of a virgin? What is the significance? What is the importance of this? So two things. Number one, Jesus is the ultimate sign and means that God will save his people. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that God saves his people. He saves them from Egypt, from Jericho, from Goliath. Um, we see uh, that God will save Israel or Judah from Israel, from Syria, like in our present text. But if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that other people are not our biggest problems. Where's our biggest problem? According to Scripture, according to the testimony of God, our biggest problem is not you, it's not other people, it's, it's me, right? Our biggest problem is our own hearts, the fact that we have sin within it. It's the fact that we reject God. It's the fact that we reject all of his goodness. And Ahaz is a great demonstration of this. What, what we need not do is, is say, man, Ahaz is a terrible person. I would never act like that. Rather, the text leads us to go, man, I'm like Ahaz. How many times is God promising us things, and am I not trusting in him, though? 
See, Ahaz perfectly demonstrates what it is to, to have the promises of God and then to reject them, trust in our own abilities, trust in our own wisdom, trust in our own resources, thinking, I got this one, God, you can have a time out here. In our human sinful nature, we actively and we intentionally rebel against God. And because of sin, what we're told all throughout God's word is that we're under the very wrath of God. We're destined to suffer under the judgment. But that's Christmas then. Then we come to Christmas. And Jesus is born. And he's born of a virgin. So that by his very birth, we would know that the anointed one, this one who's son of David, son of Abraham, by being born of a virgin, is also a sign that our enemies will be defeated. But what is our biggest enemy? Israel, remember, God's people in the first century, they thought it was Rome. Well, if we could just be free of the Roman Empire, then we could go back and do what we want. But it's not Rome. And what is our biggest enemy? And we could probably make a whole list of the things that we think are what plague us. But what we see in verse 21, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus has come to deal with the enemy that we cannot deal with. The one that is too great for every single one of us. The Bible teaches that in our own abilities, we're powerless to try to overcome sin. Just as a blind person must be given sight so that he can experience the beauty and the visual wonders of all the colors in this world, so we must be forgiven, receive new hearts, so that we can experience the joy and the wonders and the blessings of God. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas is. Jesus comes to forgive us from our sins so that we could be saved, so that we could once again have that relationship with God, so we could experience his blessing, we could experience joy, we could experience what it is to be in a relationship with him. So Jesus enters this world like you and I as a baby so that one day he would go and he would stand in our place as a substitute. Now if you're familiar with the Old Testament, we see all throughout the Old Testament, there's all these sacrifices that are taken. There's sheep, and there's goats, and there's bulls, and there's rams, and there are all these. And basically, all of these sacrifices are meant to be a substitute for you and for me. And they're standing in our place to take the punishment that we should have received. But, but can a goat really stand in your place and my place? Is that a proper substitute? No. What we need is a is a, is a human that would be willing to do that. But the problem is, you and I, in our sinfulness, we can't satisfy God's wrath. I can't even pay for my own sins, nonetheless pay for your sins either. And you can't do it for me either. And, and the Bible tells us that if we are going to pay for our sins, it takes an eternity in hell to do that. So we have no hope in a, of ourselves, so we need a substitute. The problem is, you can't do it, I can't do it. We need a perfect substitute, a righteous substitute. So Jesus comes as the perfect man, but then he's also God, so that he can actually, when he goes to the cross, stand in your place and my place and absorb God's wrath, not only uh, for you, not only for me, but for all who will ever believe in him, Jesus stands in our place. That's why Jesus came. That's what Christmas is. That's what, when we see that the, the virgin will give birth to a child, and the birth and, and this child is a sign that God will protect us and that he will save us from our enemies, Christ comes as the ultimate one to protect us. 
as the one who ultimately comes to save us from our sins. And notice, how is it that Mary has this baby? Has she achieved it on her own purposes, on her own abilities, on her wisdom? No, the entire story is all about God's intentionality, God's action, God coming into this world, God coming and doing what we could not do. You see, when we look at many other religions, every other religion, they're, they're all about how do you make your way to God? How do you get to God? How do you reach this um, utopia? How do you reach this forgiveness? How do you gain it? And it's all this, um, this fear, and it's all this, how do I earn it? Like, uh, we've spent a lot of time now talking about India. And in India, they have 33 million gods. Well, which one do you want to try to serve? The problem is if you serve this one, you might be making this one mad. So you have no hope at all. And, and then on top of that, they're all mad at you. So all these gods are mad, and so you're trying to earn their favor, trying to appease them, but you're appeasing this one and making this one mad. You have no hope. So what are you left with? Fear, anxiety, and hopelessness? But wouldn't it be great if somehow one of those gods would, would, would be greater than all the other ones and, and come and actually save? And Hinduism can't do that. Buddhism can't do that. None of these other religions can offer that. But what we come to when we come to Christianity is a God who is greater than all the other gods, who actually does come to us because we can't come to him. Places life in the Virgin Mary that Jesus would come and be a sign. And not just a sign, but then the means in which we are forgiven and our enemies are defeated. The question we're left with is, will we believe? Will I trust that Jesus alone is able to atone for my sins so that I can be saved? Or will we act like Ahaz? Will we reject the mercy that God has given us? Will we reject Jesus? Will we think that we don't need to be saved? Will we think that we can save ourselves? Will we trust in, in our abilities, our wisdom, our resources, and, and if we can be really quick to answer that. And, and probably many of you are Christians in here, and we know the right answers. Well, no, of course I'm not going to trust in any of those things. I'm only going to trust in God. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's the right answer, right? In fact, downstairs, you know, who's the fourth person in the, in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Well, it's probably Christ, right? Jesus is always the answer. When in doubt, just say Jesus. The, see, it just works. The problem is, functionally, we often deny that. Functionally, we often act as if we don't really need God. And so what, what I hope, just take a moment at this time and just evaluate. And you might have to do this later on today, too. And just evaluate, am I actually trusting in God? Am I trusting that, that in Jesus... My sins truly are forgiven. Do I have that peace and that joy that, that only God can give? Or am I trying to earn my salvation? Is that where my anxiety comes from? Is that where my anger and my frustration comes from? That if only I do this, this, or this, then I'm good enough. Then I'll be accepted. Then people will think that I'm good enough. Then God will think I'm good enough. Functionally, we often deny it. So you might be here and you're an unbeliever and you just straight up go, yes, I know that I've not believed in Jesus. And you might be the most honest person here. Because as Christians, sometimes we, we're blinded and we forget that functionally, sometimes we 
we don't trust in Jesus. And so when we come to Christmas, let it be a reminder to us of the grace that God has given us, of the mercy he has given us, that we do not need to earn our way to God. He has come and he has saved us through Jesus. Um, but there's more we need to see about this prophecy. The second thing we see, Jesus is the ultimate declaration of God's power and presence here on earth. You see, Ahaz thought he could avoid God if he rejected his mercy. He thought it was kind of optional. God says, I'm going to give you a sign. Ahaz says, I'm good. I got this. I don't need you. I'll do my own thing. And Ahaz, it seems like he's able to go about his own way. He somewhat achieves what he's looking for. Israel's defeated. Assyria is defeated. Um, But in reality, while he thought he was avoiding God, soon he found out that if he avoids God's mercy, he's only going to experience God's judgment. And so Christmas is God's declaration of his presence here on earth. Emmanuel, I am here. And with the birth of Jesus, God is letting all creation know that he is here on this earth. We do not worship a God that is distant, that is far off, that is uninterested. We don't believe in the watchmaker God. Have you heard of that? The God who who created everything like a clock, wound it up, set it aside, now walks off and the clock just kind of spins and does its thing. But he doesn't care what happens in this small little speck in the universe. That's what many people think. But God is saying, no, I made everything and it's huge and it's massive and you only live on a speck and guess where I'm at? I'm with you in that speck. I'm with you in your very lives. And so, so we need to be reminded here that we cannot avoid God. In fact, we're told in Philippians that there is a day coming, one day where every knee in heaven, on earth, and under, heaven, and under earth will all bow down and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior and King. And so the birth of Jesus right now And what it does every day, it shouts over all the sin and rebellious cries of this world to let us know that God is here. And Jesus is God. He's not just representing God. He's not a puppet figure. Paul says in Colossians 1.19, Jesus is that in Jesus the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the book of Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the exact imprint of the Father. And throughout Jesus' time on earth, he does things that only God does. He forgives sins. Remember, the Pharisees always got so mad at Jesus because he forgave sins. And technically, he can't forgive sins unless if he's God. Jesus also receives worship. Well, that would be an abomination going against the first few commandments of worship God alone unless Jesus is God. Jesus even said himself that he is God. He and the Father are one. See, when we come to Christmas, it's this beautiful annual reminder that for the last 20 centuries, God has declared his presence here on earth through his son, Jesus. So if you ever wonder, am I alone? Does God care? Does he know? Think Christmas. Christmas is the declaration. He gives a sign. The sign is the virgin birth. The ultimate one, or the the ultimate sign that the anointed one has come to be with us. And what's really interesting is if you look at Matthew as a whole, it begins with this word Emmanuel, right? Meaning God with us. 
And if you go to the end of the book in Matthew 28, what do you end with? In fact, the very last phrase of Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus is sending out his disciples into the world. And what does he say? And lo and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. It starts out with God is with us. It ends with God is with us. What's the point? God is here. And he's given his grace through his son, Jesus. And so let us know that Christmas signifies to us of God's power to overcome sin and his presence here on earth to protect us, to sustain us as we go about life. Amen, Amen, indeed. It's good news. But Christmas should not just warm our hearts with comfort. It should also ignite them with a zeal to share the gospel. Let me just give you one reason why. Because our God loves to save. I mean, that's, that's what we see in this story. Remember, remember Ahaz. God, God did not give Ahaz a sign because he earned it, because he was worthy of it. He did not save his people because they had been so faithful. They had been faithless. They had been rebellious. They had rejected him. He saves them out of grace and mercy. That's what Christmas is. Christmas reminds us of God's grace and his love and his mercy. Think back to Joseph. Remember how we said we're going to put that little pen in with Joseph? Joseph, in the appearance of sin, comes that he would be the just and merciful father. Who do you think Joseph is really meant to point us to? Are we to be in awe of Joseph? As we go through the story and we see that Jesus is the anointed one and we see that he has come to show how God has been faithful to all of his promises and he overcomes sins, are we then to go, wow, look at Joseph. Man, if I could be like Joseph, that would be awesome. You miss the whole story if we come to that. Unless if Joseph is meant to point us to a greater father. You see, what, what is it that Joseph does? Joseph, in the appearance of sin, he's going to marry Mary so that, marry Mary, <laughs> so that he can marry Mary. That's just funny. Um, so I didn't actually play that one through in my head before I said it. Ah, uh, so he, he marries, I can't say it, he marries this girl, and, and, and he adopts the child out of mercy. You get it? That's what he does. And now we have Jesus as the one who comes to save us from our sins. But, but remember, we're not just saved from something we're also saved to something, or should I say, to someone. Jesus comes to save us from our sins, we who are sinful, so that God, out of his justice and mercy, would adopt us into his family as his children. You see what, you see what Joseph does then? We're not to be in awe of Joseph. He's a just and merciful father who points us to the ultimate just and merciful father who deals with our sin. God doesn't just wipe our sins under the rug. He deals with them at the cross so that then he can bring us in to his family so that we'd be adopted forever. Listen to what Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, 
father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's Christmas. Isn't that awesome? Like, that's what happens when we come to Christmas. So why did he come through the virgin birth? Because he's the ultimate sign that God will protect us from our sins. He's the ultimate one to show God is with us. He's the one who leads us to the Father, who out of justice and mercy adopts us into his family. And yet, it's also this warning that if you want to continue on and reject God's mercy, do not think that you can actually ignore God. There is a day coming. You will still deal with God. Or better words, he will deal with you. If we reject his mercy, we will experience his judgment. And so, so here we have Christmas. Well, yes, it, it fills our hearts with this warmth of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness for us. But it fills us with a zeal to go out. Because when we're going out, who is with us? God is with us. And he loves to give grace and mercy. That's what the whole story is full of. His grace and his mercy. So that when we go to our coworkers, when we go to our neighbor, when we support missionaries in India who are going to hostile people who are willing to kill them, we go with confidence, not in our abilities, but in what? In the God who loves to save, the God who gives mercy, the God who gives grace. And Christmas is that, is that announcement to this world, is that encouragement for us as we go, that we go in the very presence of God, proclaiming the God who has come to us. That's what Matthew 1, 18 through 25, is preparing us for. And showing us that Jesus is the anointed one. He's conquered our enemy, which is sin, so that we could be adopted into the family of God and proclaim his name for all of eternity. So let's pray, and we'll take communion. Father, Father, we praise you. Father, we clearly see that this Christmas story is not about our value. It's not about our worth. It's not about our greatness. But God, it's about our depravity, our inability to save us. And it's about your mercy. It's about your grace. It's about your presence. It's about your power all coming to us through Jesus. And God, you in your mercy and sovereignty created signs and promises throughout the ages that would lead us to when we come to Christmas, that we would see exactly who your son is. Jesus has not come on a whim. He did not come out of nowhere, but he has come as the fulfillment of your plan on a mission to save us from our sins so that we could be brought into your family and dwell with you for all of eternity. Lord, I just pray that we would all just be full of that grace and that comfort, that our hearts would burn with joy right now because of what you have done for us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who does not know you, as they have heard this Christmas story, I pray that they'd be led to, to want to know you more, that they'd be led to, to confess their own sins and receive salvation in your son Jesus today. And Lord, I pray that as this fire burns within us, producing comfort, encouragement, and love that God, it would also ignite us to go out 
that it would overcome our fears of sharing the gospel. It would overcome any anxiety that we have. Because we see that your power, your presence, and your grace comes despite our inabilities. That we can share your name with boldness, not because we have the power to save, but because you do. And you have sent your son to save. And may we trust that you are not only the God who has saved, but you continue to save. Lord, fill us with the desire to share your word, to proclaim your name, to let others hear and experience the very joy that we have. And Lord, I pray that as we come to Christmas, as we come to this day, that we would rejoice knowing that because of this day, because of Christmas, we are, we know that you have overcome our enemies. The virgin birth proclaims the salvation you have won for us. Father, we praise you. In your name, Jesus, amen.